There's one of the neat stories that Jesus tells about two guys who wanted to build a house. Now, he doesn't give us all the details about it, but if, if, his, if those guys' wives were anything like my wife, uh, she started a long time ago cutting pictures out of magazines, floor plans of what a house, if she ever built one, what she wanted that house to look like. And so you can imagine excitement of, uh, of, of two families coming together and let's getting ready to build a house. Now, the first man, Jesus said, decided he wanted to build his house uh, down in a valley, down in a low place where the ground was kind of soft because he just liked to have sand between his toes. And so he built his house night there. And it was a little easier to build because it wasn't so hard to dig. It was a little easier to lay the foundation to put the posts up. And so it was a little easier for him. But he had that house right down in the valley, and, and he was pretty well satisfied with that. The other guy, though, decided he was going to build his house up a little ways where it was a little more safe, a little more secure. Of course, the ground was a little harder there, more rocks there. And so he had a harder time laying the foundation, driving the post in. But he eventually built his house as well. So you have these two men who built their houses. And everything was fine until the rain started falling and the wind started blowing. And the next thing you know, the guy who built his house down at the bottom of that, that valley, the floodwaters came and swept his house away. But the man who decided he was going to build his house on something substantial, to build his house on the rock, even though it's harder to build there, his house remained. And this is the point. Jesus said that first man was foolish. But the man who built his house on the rock was wise. Now, what's the point of that? Over the course of this month, we have been talking about God's word. I made a decision a long time ago that I was going to build my life on God, his son Jesus, and his word, the Bible. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And I've been challenging you this month to think about God's word as the foundation of your life and to let you know that you can have confidence in that word that it is true and reliable. And so this month we have asked and and tried to answer two important questions. The first question is, what is the Bible? That was what we did on that first Sunday. You'll remember, what does the Bible say about itself? Not, Not what other people say about it, but what does the Bible say about itself? And then we started a three week journey of asking the second question, which is, can you trust your Bible? And so we've looked at, uh, some of the, 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 the attacks on it, some of the, undermining of it. We've considered uh, historical liter- literary techniques as you approach the Bible. We've looked at, we've looked at uh, uh, prophecy being fulfilled. We've looked at archaeological finds. We've considered all those things. And today we want to ask this question and, and basically focus on this. The books that are contained here in your Bible... How did they get there? Why these books and not some other books? And so that's where we want to begin today. How did the 66 books that we have in our Bibles come together to be considered as Scripture? Let's pray. Lord God, let us now, 
engage our minds and our hearts to discover truth and to cling to it. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me remind you of the verse that started us out on our journey, and that was 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture, we're told, is from God and for our good. But how is this scripture put together? Let's begin by considering the Old Testament, the canon of the Old Testament. Now, when I say the word canon, some of you begin to think warfare. That actually has an extra N in it. Canon here has a different meaning. Canon means standard or rule. In other words, it is the criteria by which something is accepted. When it comes to the Bible... Uh, You may hear the term canon of scripture, depending on what you're reading. It's a reference to the 66 books that we have contained in this Bible. Among those are 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. These are considered to be scripture. These are the ones you find in your Bible. Now, we'll go ahead and kind of a sidebar here and let you know that if you were to pick up a, uh, a Catholic Bible. For instance, I have a copy of the Jerusalem Bible on the shelf in my office. If you were to pick up a copy of the Roman Catholic Bible, you would find that they also include some additional books that are called the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha, uh, even though the term means hidden, it doesn't mean that these are like secret books that tell you things that you wouldn't know otherwise. No, these were books that were written in the intertestamental period. Basically, what I'm saying is between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, these books were written. And they are very helpful as you study them to kind of figure out the mindset of Jewish people during this period of time. But they were never accepted on the same level as Scripture. Let me give you a, uh, a quote from, we mentioned him earlier, the Jewish historian Josephus from way back in the 1st and 2nd century. The Jewish historian Josephus writes, From Artaxerxes to our own time, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of exact succession of prophets. In other words, Jewish people, even though they had these books and saw that there was history in there and there were things they could pull out, they never put it on the same level as other scriptures. And so that's important for us to know because that was not considered on the same level as the other books, the 39 Old Testament books that we have. Now, how did this all get put together? That's a little harder to fashion than the New Testament because it was a lot longer ago. You know, it first began as, as, as oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation, closely guarded. The first recording we have of anything scripturally being written down was actually written by God himself on Mount Sinai, where he, with his finger, wrote on two tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. But we discover that Moses was the author, or at least the, the origin, of the first five books of the Bible. 
Whether he wrote them by hand or whether he had scribes write them down is really irrelevant. But he is who is credited with those other, those first five books of the Bible. Now, as time went along, these books were, were, were collected. They were used and they were considered scripture. The Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures that uh, we have, the Hebrew Bible, was in its complete form and being used in worship and being studied by 100 B.C. and likely before 100 B.C. In other words, as far back as we can go to figure out when that collection was put together uh, was probably 100 B.C. Okay, now we look at that and we go, you know, that's only, oh gosh, 2,200 years ago. That's not so long. It certainly was some years after it was written. So how do we know that the Old Testament is trustworthy? And that's the question I want us to answer. And there are three parts to that answer this morning. The first one is the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, what are they? The Dead Sea Scrolls are documents. Here's what happened. There was a shepherd who was out near the Dead Sea in an area of Qumran uh, who was uh, throwing some rocks. And one of his rocks went into a cave. And when it did, he heard a crash. And so when he investigated, he discovered that the cave was filled with these clay pots. And inside the clay pots were lots of documents, old, old documents. In fact, what they ended up discovering as a uh, archaeologist moved in was there were a number of caves around there that contained these clay pots with documents in them. From, the de- from that whole area, they've collected 972 of these ancient documents. Now, why is that important? Because 40% of those documents are from the Hebrew Bible. A lot of other things are in there. There's simple record-keeping kinds of things or other historical type things in there. But 40% of the documents found were from the Hebrew Bible. Now, this part is the best part of all. And this is why I think you can look at this and go, they really were diligent when they copied these things. One of the scrolls that was found was an almost perfectly intact scroll of Isaiah. This scroll was 1,100 years older than any known copy of Isaiah. 1,100 years. I mean, this was an archaeological find of the century. You have a copy of the scroll of Isaiah that is over a thousand years, over a millennia older than the, than the copy you previously had. Now, here's the deal. Let's lay this one out. Of course, they had to be a lot more gentle than that. Let's lay this one out on this table, and let's lay the one we have, the newer copy, on this table, and now let's compare them to see how they match up. And what they discovered, that it was virtually identical. There was hardly any variance at all. And again, where there were, it would be a punctuation or a spelling type issue. In other words, it was an exact replica, almost a carbon copy. After 1,100 years. Now, that should just absolutely cause a gasp on your part. This is unheard of. I mean, you can't, we couldn't pass a, 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 a verbal uh, you know, uh, a sentence from this end of this row to this end of this row, and it'd be right. 
But over 1,100 years of copying, it was almost identical. And that tells us, it leads us to the second area of being trustworthy, and that is that there were intentional scribes. Scribes were people who made these copies, who, who copied these things over and over. And F.F. F. Bruce wrote in his book, uh, The Books and the Parchments, that the scribes who copied the Hebrew Bible did so with the greatest imaginable reverence and devised a complicated system of safeguards against scribal slips. They counted, for example, the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurs in each book. They pointed out the middle letter of the Pentateuch and the middle letter of the whole Hebrew Bible. And they made even more detailed calculations than this. In other words, they'd count all of the times a letter appeared in their cop- the one that they were copying from. And then once the copy was made, they would go and they would count how many times that letter appeared in this copy. They'd find the exact center of what they were copying on this document. And then when they finished this one, they'd come and find the exact center. If it didn't match, you know what they did? They didn't get the white out. They burned it. They destroyed it. Why? Because they believed with all their hearts that they were handling the very word of God. And if you're handling the word of God, you don't do it in a haphazard manner. They were so diligent about making sure it was accurate that any inaccuracy was caused for it to be completely destroyed. Now, so we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we got these, these scribes who was being very, very intentional. But here, for me, as a follower of Jesus, is a clincher, and that is that Jesus endorsed it. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, has Jesus' endorsement. Jesus quoted extensively from Old Testament writers, and not just from one single place in the Old Testament. The other writers of the New Testament quote from what we consider the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. There was never in any of Jesus' words or in any of the other biblical writers, there was never an argument about whether there was ever scripture. It was quoted as scripture and accepted as God's word. In fact, this is what Jesus said. It's recorded in Matthew 5. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. In other words, he believed this was the word of his father. And quite frankly, I'm inclined to take Jesus' word for it. Now, he condemned the religious elite for misusing Scripture, but he never condemned them for using Scripture. And you'll remember, when Jesus when Jesus preached his first sermon in a synagogue, he, he asked for the scroll of Isaiah, and it was given to him. It was pulled out of a collection of scrolls that were considered to be God's Word. Now, this is kind of cool. Um, I don't know if any of you... Have anybody ever been to a service in a Jewish synagogue? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. When they bring out the scroll, it is ceremonial. It is covered. It is ornate. Why? For the same reason that it was handled so tenderly and diligently. 
Because this is, these are the words of God given to us. And so I believe with all my heart and I stake my life and eternity on the fact that what we have here is true. Now, let's shift and let's move to the New Testament or the canon of the New Testament for a moment. Some of you may have seen uh, the movie or read the book called The Da Vinci Code that Dan Brown, uh, Dan Brown wrote the book and the movie was based on it. That uh, is, is kind of interesting because the premise behind all of it is that there were competing gospels in the first few centuries and that the Council of Nicaea in, in 376 AD under the direction of the Roman Emperor Constantine selected these books and they were selected on the basis of, well, if it, if it heightens Jesus' divinity, we'll accept that. If it lowers Jesus' divinity, then we'll discard that. And that all these competing groups were just put down. There's some grand conspiracy going on. And there's really only one problem with that. It's completely historically inaccurate. Makes for a great novel. But as far as history, it's inaccurate. But you would be surprised the number of people who've embraced that. Or if you happen to watch the Discovery Channel or A&E or the History Channel or some of these other uh, cable-type channels, every once in a while you'll see a program on the Lost Gospels. Ooh, the Lost Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Barnabas. And you go, I didn't know there were other Gospels. Pastor Jimmy never quotes from them. Well, there's a good reason. Because they're not scripture. As a matter of fact, most of them were written in the uh, second century at the earliest. And if you go back and you begin to read some of it, you could begin to see why the churches said, no, I don't think we're going to accept that. Now, all this time for these last four weeks, I've been asking you to take my word on things. Today, I have brought a team of two resident experts Bible scholars of the highest level who teach in seminaries, and I'm going to have them share with you. I wish they could be here in person, but through the magic of video, I want to share with you from Dr. Michael Kruger, who's, who's at uh, the Reformed Theological Seminary, and Dr. D.A. Carson from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, both top-notch scholars And I just want to let them tell you what I've been sharing with you for the last few weeks. And so if we could watch those videos. Ehrman often claims in regards to the New Testament canon that uh, early Christians had a variety of New Testament canons at their disposal. He often talks about what he calls wild diversity within early Christianity. That in the early centuries of the church, people were reading all sorts of books. There was all sorts of different types of versions of Christianity with their own gospels and their own documents. And so it gives this impression that we have this sort of competing uh, uh, set of books where the New Testament canon was in some sense a literary free-for-all, where no one knew which were the right books and no one knew which were the wrong books and everyone was kind of doing their own thing. Now, that type of presentation certainly has a lot of rhetorical advantages and can certainly uh, sound overwhelming to any student that's not aware of the issues in early Christianity. The problem is that it's entirely misleading in the way it describes the way the canon developed. If one wants to portray the New Testament canon as developing in a way that was entirely haphazard 
and open-ended until the fourth century. That's simply not the case. When we look into the early centuries of the church, particularly the second century, we realize that the core of the New Testament canon was in place almost from the very beginning. What do we mean by core? What we mean is the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and at least 10, if not 13, epistles of Paul. For example, one of our earliest canonical lists, the Muratorian Fragment, dates from the late 2nd century, probably around 170 or 180 A.D. In that particular document, it is clear that there's only four Gospels that are received, and it lists all of 13 of Paul's epistles. Now, that's in the middle of the 2nd century. And what that tells you, then, is that the Muratorian Fragment, that canonical list, didn't make up those things. It's obviously picking up earlier tradition. What we see, then, is that there's a core of New Testament books that were never really in dispute at all. There was never really a dispute about the Gospels in any fundamental way. It was these four from the very start. When it came to Paul's epistles, the core were in place from the very beginning. When we talk about any disputes at all, if we can even use that term, it really has to do with just a handful of books. Some of the peripheral books, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, uh, and 2nd Peter are the primary books that discussions center upon. But to portray the New Testament canon as entirely open-ended is entirely misleading. Uh, because the core was there from the start. And if the core was there from the start, then decisions were already made about the divinity of Jesus. Decisions were already made about who he was and what he came to do. Decisions were already made about the nature of the gospel message. So dis- ir- irregardless of what was decided about Second Peter or Jude, the trajectory of Christianity was already determined from a very early time, much earlier uh, than most people realize. Well, first of all, I don't accept that the Church Fathers created the canon. I think that's entirely the wrong category. Um, In fact, it's the wrong category by their own talk about the books of the New Testament. Rather, they were convinced that God had given some documents that were as inspired, as authoritative, as binding as Old Testament books that were already recognized. And the question is, how do you recognize them? How do you recognize them over against competitors? So it wasn't as if the church fathers were going around asking, shall we create a bunch of authoritative documents and call them the canon? Rather, they were asking, granted that God has given us certain materials, materials that we all recognize, what is the limit of those materials? And they developed certain criteria those um, criteria were fundamentally three. The first was, uh, is the material apostolic? Now, by that, they didn't necessarily mean it had to be written by an apostle, one of those first designated by Jesus. But it either had to be written by an apostle or be associated with an apostle in some sense, within uh, a full generation. So Mark's gospel, for example, was known to be connected with um, Peter. Uh, Luke was known to be connected with Paul and so forth. But they were trying to preserve the central place of the first witnesses who were in living contact with uh, Jesus himself rather than allowing um, a a long succession of later narratives to uh, come on board. So when you start dealing with oh, the Gospel of Peter and this sort of thing, a second century document without any living connection with Peter Um, long beyond the time of the apostolic period. Uh, One of the reasons why it's not accepted is because it doesn't meet the first criterion. And then, uh, second, 
the question was always raised, has this always been universally recognized throughout the church? That is to say, is it just some sort of local thing that's been built up by some sort of aberrant group in Egypt, let's say, or in Babylon? Or is it instead something that is um, massively accepted by the whole church? And you have to recognize that sometimes some documents took a little longer to be accepted in other places. They recognize that too. But that was an important criterion too, so that it was not just a parochial judgment. And then third, they wanted to ask, um, is this in line with the gospel that we have understood, with what has already been passed down in the documents that are already accepted, in the teachings that the first apostles recognized? Um, is this something that... Um, that, uh, that, that is in line with that, or is it, is it different? Now, the possibility of false documents being circulated was recognized from the earliest period. Paul himself warns the Thessalonians that sometimes people were even using his name, trying to, uh, uh, trying to claim some, some authority when it wasn't really valid, which is why, even when he dictated his letters, he made sure he signed it himself, the, the, the signature by the hand of me, Paul, so I write in all my letters. So the question of authentication was pretty important, and the church tried to handle it pretty well. But that doesn't mean that the authority rests in the church. The church merely came to recognize uh, a packet of documents that God himself had given. That is the way it seems to me that it should be worded. And, um, and to think of this as a massive conspiracy in which, in which a, a lot of priestly people in Rome or someplace picked and chose in order to uh, get rid of a whole lot of uh, false teaching has really got the history all backwards. It's been touted this way for a long time as if the first teaching structure of the early church was massively diverse and variegated and so on and gradually became narrower and narrower as the orthodox, those nasty right-wing bigoted people finally cut off Gnostics and uh, other kinds of things. The history is just distorted when it's put like this. And it has been answered again and again and again. It starts off with the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, and as it begins to expand, then there are variations of teaching that eventually are judged to be outside the camp. Already in one of the earliest documents in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Galatians, he is dealing with another gospel that is really no gospel at all. Um, that's, that's because there was already an accepted gospel and now something is distorting it, and he begins to challenge it. And as the challenges become more and more and more diverse, you get into the second and third centuries, and you begin to see claims of things that are very far removed from, from what you find in the New Testament. If, if somebody doubts this, all they really have to do is, um, is compare, let's say, the Gospel of Peter with the Gospel of Mark. I'd strongly suggest that people read the two documents and see if they sound alike, if they're talking about the same things, if they're heading in the same direction. And you quickly see that that's not the case. I think there's one other thing that needs to be said. We speak today of the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. And there are some people of more um, skeptical persuasion that think that this suggests... Um, there were different messages, there were different gospels, there were different teachings. There was a Markan teaching and a Lucan teaching and a John, a Johannine teaching and so forth, and they can't really be fit together. But that's not what the earliest documents call them. In all of the earliest documents, it's the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel 
according to Mark, and so forth. So it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one gospel, according to different witnesses with different slants, different emphases, and this sort of thing that coalesce in a variety of ways. And so it's no surprise that all four canonical gospels, as we refer to them, the one gospel of Jesus Christ according to four different authors, they all have a certain kind of similarity of structure, too. You begin with the origins of Jesus Christ. You mentioned John the Baptist. You go through periods of Jesus' ministry, his teaching, sayings, with different emphases, admittedly, until ultimately there's a drive toward Christ's death and resurrection. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is this message about who Jesus is, what he said and taught, and, and then his death and resurrection and what it, what it means. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you come to something like the so-called gospel of Thomas. It's not a gospel. Uh, it's almost certainly mid-2nd century. But in any case, it doesn't have any of the storyline. It's 114 separate sayings with three little snippets of narrative that don't take you to the passion and resurrection of Christ. It's not a gospel. And, and that fundamental distinction simply has to be acknowledged or the history is distorted. The reason I wanted to take you through that was because I think it's important that you see that uh, you'll hear from supposed scholars who are very eager to tear down your confidence in Scripture. And I felt it was very important for you to hear from scholars who can come alongside you to help you understand. And I agree with exactly what Dr. Carson said, which is if you want to see the difference between these supposed lost Gospels and the Gospels that you have in here, you can find them online and read them for yourself. Don't be afraid of it. What you'll find is that it's not at all. I mean, you'll find stories like Jesus when he was a child, and he decided for his own entertainment purposes to turn all his little friends into donkeys and let them dance around for them, and when he'd finished with his entertainment, he turned them back into children. I don't remember reading that one in Matthew because it's not in there. People were curious about who Jesus was as a child, and so these stories began to be made up, and they found their way into these supposed gospels. And so you can have confidence. Let me kind of summarize something that each of these scholars said. The first is from from Michael Kruger, the first guy you saw. He said that the core of the New Testament canon was in place almost from the very beginning. I think that's important for us to understand. The core of the New Testament canon was there from almost the very beginning. It was not something that was created in 367 as some council. As a matter of fact, uh, the Nicene Council of 367 didn't deal with the, council of the, the canon of Scripture at all. And so for those who say it is, that wasn't even on their agenda. The second thing from uh, Dr. Carson is this criteria he mentioned for inclusion in the New Testament. And that was an apostolic connection. That is, these books need to be connected in some way with one of the apostles. Acceptance by the churches. That is, instead of a council selecting these things, it was recognized what God was already affirming in the churches. And then third was consistent with already accepted scriptures. That is, both what we saw in the Old Testament and also what we have in the Gospels and the writings of Paul and and Peter and so forth. Now we've tread a lot of ground over the last four weeks and uh, some of it has maybe been familiar territory to some of you. Uh, Some of it, it was absolutely brand new land you'd never crossed before. But my hope is what you come away with this with is an increased confidence 
that the Bible you hold in your hands is true and reliable. You can build your life on this. You can stake your eternity on this. So before I wrap it up, I want to ask one more question. And that is, why is this important at all? Some of you are sitting out there and go, you know what? God says that I believe it, that settles it. Maybe you've even seen that on a bumper sticker. Okay? I applaud your confidence in God's word. But for others of you, some of these questions that we've addressed are questions that you've been asking. And you thought the church was afraid to answer because there was no good answer. So let me give you three reasons why it was important to do this. Number one, for your sake. For your sake. There is an adversary. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. And if you are in Christ, then that adversary cannot have your soul. That's the good news. But it doesn't mean he won't play with your mind. It doesn't mean he won't try to deceive you. After all, he is, as Jesus called him, the father of lies. You do not have to be afraid to tackle the hard issues of faith. You do not need to be afraid of science. You do not need to be afraid of archaeology. You do not need to be afraid of the scholars who want to undermine your confidence in Scripture. In fact, you don't need to protect God. Sometimes we think God needs our protection. That, you know, he, he's just, he can't defend himself, poor fellow. And he needs us to stand up and defend him. No, he doesn't. But he does want us to stand with him. There's a difference. God doesn't need us to come to, our, to his defense. But he does want us to stand with him and defend what he defends as truth. So it's for your sake. You need this. You need the mental gymnastics. You need the mental assurance that what you believe in your heart is true. Secondly, for your children and your grandchildren's sakes. With each passing generation, statistically you can see this, less and less and less people are connected with the church and even call themselves Christian. There's still a lot of people who say, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. And I'm not quite sure what it means. I think it means something different for each person that says it. But people have become skeptical about church, skeptical about the Bible, skeptical about pastors, church leaders. What do we do about that? First of all, we need to know this. There are a lot of people who give lip service to this who don't read it at all. There are a lot of people who say, I believe the Bible. But if you ask them to uh, look up something, or just ask them, hey, listen, is Haggai a book in the Bible? Well, I don't know. And then they, they start looking over here at Revelation, start going backwards. You know, you don't have to have Haggai memorized, but you at least ought to know it's in there. You need to know this. 
You need to read this. Don't be afraid of it. Will there be parts that you don't understand? Absolutely. There are parts in here I don't understand. But as Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that give me a problem. It's the parts that I do understand. As we begin to read this and understand it, it is for the sake of the generations who come behind us so we can stand up with integrity and say, this is what God says. And to go along with that, our lives have to match it. The only way that we're going to turn this ship around of people who are spiritual but not religious, of people who, who you know, say, you know, I believe in God but don't know which God it is that they believe in, The only way we're going to turn this around is in our homes. When we begin not to teach God's word and to live it. Because if we teach it and don't live it, they'll reject it. So we need to do it for our sake, for our children and grandchildren's sake. But the reason we did this was also for the gospel's sake. You see, there are all kinds of truths out there. The Mormons have truths. Jehovah Witnesses have truths, and they'll be happy to come to your door and tell you about them. Muslims have truths. They've got books written down. They've got documents. They can't all be true. So what do we do? If we embrace the Jesus who's in the Bible, we have to reject the Jesus who's in the Book of Mormon, who's in Jehovah Witness literature, the Watchtower, and he's found in the Koran. Not the same guy. Not the God-man who walked on this earth, died on a cross for our sins, and rose again in victory on the third day. Now, how do you know him? How do you know the gospel? You do not get it by osmosis. You get it from here. Every statement of faith that I have ever read does not begin with, we believe in God. It begins with, we believe in God's word, the Bible. Because this, he's there without this. But you're going to have a hard time knowing him without this. You're going to have a hard time knowing Jesus without this. You're going to have a hard time knowing the gospel without this. And for the gospel's sake, you need it. You need this. A lot of other resources. If you want to delve deeper into these things, I can give you all kinds of resources, video, uh, print, whatever you need. But I pray that you come through this with a deeper love, appreciation, um, respect, commitment to this, is, to this God's word. This is foundational. This is kind of where we want to build our house, build our lives. Jesus said the wise man, The wise person, he built his house on the rock. And when the wind blew and the storms came, the house built on that rock stood. 